Hello there, I'm Dee Reddy and welcome to Inside Intercom. On this week's show, we're covering a lot of ground with business consultant Jeff Godelf as he talks us through agile processes, adapting for scale and how design teams can lead the way in evolving an innovative company culture. I'm a recent recruit to Intercom as podcast editor, so I was delighted to have my first interview for the show be with such an interesting and engaging guest. Jeff has had an incredible career, which has seen him work as an information architect, design team leader, product manager, founder, trainer, coach, consultant, author, and publisher. But before beginning his 20-year career in tech, he even spent some time with a circus, but more of that later. Jeff has design in his DNA, having started his working life as a designer, working, as he says, with the first companies to use the internet as a new communication, sales, and service channel. We chat about design DNA in some detail and discover how this can be a critical element in an organization's success when scaling up. If you enjoy my chat with Jeff, be sure to check out a recent episode of Inside Intercom featuring his longtime friend and business partner, Josh Seiden. And while you're there, make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes by subscribing at iTunes, Overcast, Spotify, or your usual podcast platform. So Jeff, just want to say thanks a million for joining us on the podcast today. And maybe we could kick things off if you wanted to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be an expert on everything from agility processes to product design and general digital transformation. Sure. I started my career like anybody else back in the web 1.0 days, doing whatever we could to get websites up online, which was HTML and a little front-end design. And what's interesting is that as the complexity of the web increased, the complexity of the work that we were doing increased. And so I moved to specialize a bit more initially in information architecture and then user experience design and then product management. And what was interesting is that I hit this critical point about 10 years into my career. 10 years into my career, I realized that despite being a designer primarily, I wasn't really designing anything. I was writing specifications documents. And on a good day, 50% of those spec documents would get implemented, which meant that on a good day, 50% of my work got thrown away. And that was a good day. On a bad day, a lot more of it got thrown away. And I wasn't willing to continue down that path if this was the way it was going to be for the next 10 years. Now, luckily for me, I found myself in a position where I was leading a design team in New York at an organization that was transitioning from waterfall software development to agile software development. And my responsibility was to build a design team in that new agile way of working. And back then, this is about 12 years ago now, nobody had a good answer for how to do this. Lots of people had bad answers <laughs> and, and failed answers about how to do it. And so we set out to solve this issue. And we talked to the people who had tried and not succeeded. And we learned a lot of things, a lot of anti-patterns. And we iterated. And then about six months later, the team and I had figured out something that worked for us. And I began to write about it. And I began to speak about it. And all of a sudden, I got offered the opportunity to write a book about it. Mm -hmm. There were some other folks who were doing the similar kind of work. Um, I met Josh Seiden, who became my co-author. And the book did really well. Lean UX was the book. And it changed what I was doing for a living. People stopped asking me to design software Mm -hmm. and said, Jeff, we're also having all these same problems. Come teach us how you guys did it at the ladders. 
And so that's what I started doing. I started consulting and teaching and training and speaking about this. And what's fascinating is that over the years, the scope of that conversation has moved, has grown to be not just tactical product team level process fixing and, and, and improvement, but organizational improvement as well, because you have to build the kinds of cultures and leadership teams that support this way of working or it doesn't work. And so I do a lot of that today. I work with product teams to help them build better products. And I work with leadership teams to help them build the cultures that build better products. And what sort of companies are these teams based in? The companies that I generally work with are large and medium-sized companies. And more often than not, they are what we would call today traditional established types of businesses. So think about brick-and-mortar retailers, banks, insurance companies, telcos, that type of thing. Because it's funny, I, I heard a speech that you gave where you were talking about the New York Times, which wouldn't traditionally have, you know, adopted maybe tech practices, but that, that you said that they had started to see themselves as a tech company. Yes. And, and that's absolutely critical to their success because they were getting crushed Mm-hmm. by the digitally native news organizations like BuzzFeed and Huffington Post and so forth. And, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't fathom it. How, how could we be getting crushed by cat videos, <laughs> what was going on at the time, right, when we're the best journalists in the world, which is their point of view. And when they finally recognized that they have to think of themselves as a digital company that delivers great journalism, it fundamentally changed how they work. They still do the journalism that they were doing before, but the delivery channels are more diverse. The cadences are different. The reliance on the old print aspect of it has gone down tremendously. And and most importantly, they're changing their cadences of work. They're, They're realizing that Not only do we have a 24-hour news cycle, but we've got a 24-hour consumption cycle. We've got people who are consuming news all the time, and and we can serve them better if we learned how to do that. So one of the things we wanted to ask you was, what kind of challenges are you seeing product and design teams come up against as that business starts to grow? Because obviously you're working with businesses when they're in that stage of their development. So, you know, there's a lot of challenges here, but it's it's funny. Um, I worked in a high growth startup for four years, about a decade ago, and we went from, I joined it about the 200 person mark and it got up to about 400, 450 when I left the company. And what was interesting is that as the company continued to grow, the sentiment seemed to increase. And I hear this a lot, especially even in large companies today, they say, we miss the old days when we were smaller and like we miss the startup ways when we could just make decisions more quickly and we can react in a more nimble fashion. It didn't take seven different signatures to get anything done. 12 people didn't have to look at everything. And so I hear that a lot. There seems to be, as these companies scale, there seems to be a a challenge for them in maintaining the pace and the agility that they had when they were smaller. So with those challenges then, these seem to be universal challenges that companies face, Knowing then that if they're hoping to reach that point of scaling, what can people do before they reach that point to kind of future-proof themselves in a sense against it? It, Look, I think there's a tremendous, in fact, I was talking to a founder yesterday and it's a founder and he's running an 80-person company and 20 of those people are in product development. The other 60 do other things in the organization because it's a unique business. And 
he was asking me these very similar questions. And he said, look, um, I want to make sure that we do really great product development because I want to plant those seeds now. So as we scale to 200, 400, 500, 1,000 people, I want those seeds to flourish, that we, we understand how we do work, what we value, and how we measure success. And I found that to be extremely inspirational in the sense mm -hmm. that you don't hear a lot of founders saying that. Founders are generally very, very confident about their, their view and how things should be. Well, they have and, to be. Well, well fair, fair enough, right? Because you know, they have to carry people with them in, in this belief. But, but, but to that end, th this particular individual said, look, I, I know my business, I know my customers, but you know what? Digital product development, that's not my strength. And so I really want to work to, to build those seeds now. And so I think that, that if you find yourself in a similar position, even if, if you've got a 100-person product development organization, it's still small by, by kind of the standards of, of you know, massive companies. And so you've got a real opportunity to build in the reward structures and the kind of culture that values autonomy, values customer centricity, values agility, and, and values evidence-based decision-making, and creates the safe space for those things to happen. And all of that stuff is looking internally to the company then, because there's, there's other challenges, aren't there, that, that would come externally to, you know, you can build all these brilliant processes within your team, but then there's all these things that are changing outside of your control in the business environment. So if you're trying to watch out for new competitors or break into new markets, how, like, what would be your advice for teams to retain that balance of being responsive, but not being overly reactive or unfocused in their response? One of the things that I recommend to pretty much every team that I work with, because I've yet to come across a team that's that's doing this to the best of their abilities, is to ensure that they've always got to be on what their customers are, are looking for, what they're doing, what their needs are, and how they're evolving. Now, this is particularly interesting if you're trying to move into a new market or an adjacent market and so forth. How well do you know that market? How well do you know the customers in, in your market or in the adjacent market? And how, what kind of, 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 of practices do you have in place to make sure that you are deeply empathetic with that customer and that you continue to do that because the pace of change today is so fast and the consumer consumption patterns that we saw a year ago or two years ago are simply not the same today. And that's going to continue to change quickly. And so just because you you understood your customer when you started the company doesn't necessarily mean that those needs and those those pain points are, are the same today and that you're meeting you're meeting those needs in the same powerful way that you may have a year ago. And so the thing that you can really have to focus on is how well you know your customer and how quickly you can continue to learn about their evolving needs. And then to move away, I guess, from the just the processes side of things, because you have this amazing background in design. So I'm curious to actually kind of drill down into how you think design teams in particular should be adjusting. So this is really interesting because I've been, you know, I, I spent 10 years as a designer just in the trenches designing mm. and then and then several years leading design teams as the world, if you will, was transitioning into agile ways of working. And it, it was not an easy transition and it continues to be a difficult transition as well, because what we're asking designers to do and what we've been asking them to do for the last decade plus is to open up the design process. 
there was a gold there was a golden age and I'm gonna say it's not, it's not golden age of products necessarily but it, it was the golden age of process <laughs> for dis, for designers when we were all doing waterfall and I'll tell you why uh, it, it was because we had the design phase now sometimes it was three months and sometimes it was three days but regardless of how long it was it was hours and now it's forever <laughs> right but nobody messed with us right? yeah we it was, it was this black box that requirements would come in on one end and then, you know, beautiful stuff would come out the other end and whatever happened in the middle, well, that was our world. And we got to do whatever we wanted in that. That has had to go away in order to build the agile kind of agility driven organizations that we're working in today. And what that's required is, is to open up the design process and involve people who were traditionally non-designers in that process and to show work much more quickly than we ever would have in the past. And that continues to prove to be a challenge for a lot of designers, but has always been the biggest pushback to integrating design well into these, these agile processes. And do do you think there's an element of designers not wanting to share the ownership then? Absolutely, right? I'm the designer. Look, if if I'm the designer and I bring in a product manager and an engineer into a meeting and we're discussing design and we're co-designing stuff, then what do I do, right? I thought this was my job. Don't they write code and, and... you know, mm-hmm. manage products, right? So there, there's a value there. there, there there's a, a shift in the perception of the value that you bring to the organization. Your job as a designer has to evolve to fit into this new world. You're not just the person who moves the pixels around into an order that looks good and meets the needs of the user and makes sense to them, but you are uh, also a facilitator, you're the voice of the customer. You are the link between the business engineering and product management. There is there's a much broader set of components to being a successful designer in, in 2019 than there was in 2009 or 1999 for that matter. And do you think because of that sort of historical approach that maybe as companies grow, that design gets a little bit more neglected? So, you know, it's interesting because I've never heard of an organization that said, oh, we have plenty of designers. Mm-hmm. We don't need it. We don't need any more. It seems to always be a challenge to get enough designers on staff. And there seems there's no shortage of open design positions. If you look on LinkedIn, you search for UX designer, interaction designer, there are thousands of positions currently open. So on the one hand, you're, I'm seeing things, like you said, design being neglected and not, not being hired and not being staffed and not being brought on. On the other hand, there are thousands of open jobs as well. And so it's a really interesting conundrum here of, of, of who's hiring, who they are hiring, and why there, there is kind of a, a lack of designers in certain organizations, even though there don't seem to be job recs for them. It's, it's, it's this weird mix that I haven't really reconciled yet, but there's the one thing that, that I think is obvious to everybody is that they can't not have design at all. How much varies from organization to organization? And at what point it becomes part of it? Because one thing you mentioned actually earlier this week when we were talking was you said that a lot of companies don't have design in their DNA and that that's a problem. I find that a really interesting statement. Yeah. I mean, look, if the founders of an organization 
are not designers and don't come from a background where well-designed products played a key role in their life and influenced them and that kind of thing, then oftentimes it's one of the last things to get brought on to a team, certainly in a startup situation. And so that is an issue when you do start to bring on designers because they will clash with the culture of the organization. And if they're clashing with the culture, they're not going to stick around for very long. And so the question is, if you don't have design DNA in the organization today, how do you get it? One way to get it is, is to bring in a design leader, somebody who, who is not only a talented designer themselves, but can influence the organization by showing the value that design brings to the organization and can start to affect the way the company works to inject design practices into that cadence and then ultimately again prove the value of it because again you can talk about it all day long you can show pretty pictures you can talk about apple and netflix and nest and all these all these examples of of great design but at the end of the day if i can't prove to you the my colleagues at, at my company my boss the founder that the work that i do as a designer adds value to our customers and to our company you're never going to get behind it that makes a lot of sense. And do you think by designers doing that, that they can actually lead or teach a culture of innovation within the organization? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that once a designer has collected enough experience and has worked at enough projects, they are well suited for beginning this facilitation role that draws in product managers, that draws in engineers, that draws in founders and business leaders, and draws in other designers, and builds an innovation practice around them that at the core of it solves meaningful customer problems. And I think that, uh, and I've seen designers lead those roles. And again, what's fascinating is that I see that happen more and more in larger organizations, because design leaders end up finding themselves with a seat at the table and an opportunity to access a broad spectrum of individuals inside these organizations. And that allows them, that gives them the authority and the credibility to then say, look, I've identified this customer problem. And if you give me one person, if you give me one person, if you give me one person, the four of us can work together as this kind of small in-house startup team to start to innovate around this challenge. And we can prove to you that it's going to work. And I've seen that work tremendously well. So if you can actually do this successfully, then do you think that that helps when the company reaches the scaling phase? I think that, look, here's the thing. Innovation is such a, you know, you know, it's uh, on the one hand, people say innovation is everyone's job, right? I actually disagree with that. I don't think innovation is everyone's job in an organization. I think incremental improvement should be somebody's job at the at the company. Really, I think because look, innovation means that you are going to try to find ways to disrupt the way that you currently do business. I suppose if everyone's disrupting it then it gets yeah, a bit busy. Yeah, right, who's building this who's who's actually maintaining the system? Yeah. Right? And so we, we've got to task specific teams with the mandate of innovation, and then we've got to build those teams to and make sure that they include designers on them. That's it. But, yeah. but I think it specifically has to be somebody's, somebody's job, not everybody's job. The other thing I wanted to ask you about was if you're a company like that, that doesn't actually have design in your DNA, and maybe it's reached a point that it's gotten a bit too far, how can you make up ground on something like that? Because 
you know, even by virtue of saying design DNA, it's kind of, it, it's, it's really knitted into it. So when you spoke with Josh Seiden, mm-hmm. he talked to you about outcomes over outputs. And summarize that basically is instead of targeting the delivery of the software as the measure of success, we target change in the behavior of our customers as the measure of success. That's the difference. If an organization has gone too far down a particular path where design is continuously left out of the conversation, Mm -hmm. if they start to manage their work to outcomes, they cannot succeed if they don't incorporate designers into that process. Here's why. If I tell you to build an iPhone app, you can go build the app. Now, it could be well-designed, it could be poorly designed, but you built the app, and that was the measure of success. We shipped it. If I said to you, I want you to increase mobile commerce by 15%, all of a sudden, you and the team now have to go discover the best combination of code, design, requirements, features, value proposition, pricing model, et cetera, to help make that happen. And without somebody who's a voice, who understands the customer, who knows how to design these experiences, who knows how to prototype these things, that process is always going to fail. And so if you've gone too far, if the organization can switch to managing to outcomes, it starts to force the conversation around design and then ultimately get those folks hired and on the team. I'm just going to pause the podcast there for a second to tell you that the Intercom Customer Service Trends Report 2024 is out now. We asked 2,000 plus customer service teams across the globe how they are meeting the challenges and opportunities of 2024. In it, you'll see this year's top five customer service trends plus strategies to meet rising customer expectations. You can find the report at inter.com forward slash 2024 trends. Okay, back to today's episode. There's one story from your past that I saw in one of your lovely talks that you gave where you talked about having worked in a circus. And I was really, really struck by it. Um, I don't know if you want to share an abridged version of it, but there was just that you talk about the human cannibal and an issue with the mannequin, and I won't ruin it. But because I I would love you to tell it for the audience, but I wonder is when a company is scaling, is there some sort of analogy to be made between the weightier mannequin being like the stuff that you bring on board with you as the company grows? So I'll tell the story and then I can definitely tie it back. Because there's a reason why I tell the story, not just because it's a cool story. Well, it's a pretty cool story, but it is a really nice analogy. Yeah. So, um, so my first job out of university was with a circus. <laughs> I, I was the, the sound and lighting technician for the Clyde Beatty Cole Brothers Circus, which was a three-ring tented circus, very traditional kind of circus that went up and down the East Coast of America for about, about nine months. I spent six months on the road, and I met a lot of super interesting people. And the most, one of the most interesting people that I met during that time was the human cannonball. Now, this guy was the the picture of what what in the U.S. is called All-American. He was a football player. He was blonde hair, blue eyes. He was fit. And, and his job was literally to fly out of a cannon during a two-minute act in every show. He, we did two shows every day, so he worked four minutes a day and land <laughs> in a net on the other side of the tent. That was the act. Now, this was, I mean, this is 20 years ago, and he 
you know, it was it was a fairly mechanical process here. There was no no digital technology here. It was a it was a spring. It was a it wasn't a real cannon, obviously. It was a spring loaded cannon. You'd hope they've added to the technology since then just a little bit. You would you would hope you would hope. Um, and basically, he would you know he'd slide down the cannon, the barrel of the cannon, and the ringmaster would hit a button, and the spring would trigger and it would push him out and he would you know fly across and land in a net. Now, the way that they would determine where to put up the net every every time we came to a new circus lot which was every 2 days is they had a mannequin. They had a they had a doll that weighed about the same as the guy and you know we'd, we'd pull up to a new place, they'd put up the tent, they would drive the cannon, the cannon was on the back of a truck, they would drive the cannon truck in, they'd park it, they'd mark the parking spot, they aim the cannon, put the, the mannequin, and fire it. And wherever it landed, that's where they put up the net. It's just not the most exact science. Yeah. <laughs> and that worked every night of the week for years, right? Mm-hmm. And then one, one night, there was the cannon truck was late arriving to the circus lot. And instead of testing out the location that night, they were going to do it in the morning. And so they left the mannequin out overnight, and it rained. And the next day, they did exactly the same thing they had done night after night for years. They put the mannequin in, they fired it wherever it landed, they put the net up. And that afternoon, in front of 4,000 children, the human cannonball got in, waved goodbye. And when the cannon fired him, he was significantly lighter than the mannequin. And he flew way past the net in front of all these children. He was critically injured. He did not die, but he was definitely badly injured. And it's kind of a sad story, but at least yeah. at least he lived to tell it in the end. And so, look, why do I tell the story? Obviously, because it's interesting and no, no one has a, not a lot of people have circus stories. No, I'd wager it's the first time circuses have been mentioned in this podcast. I'm going to have to go back and check. <laughs> yeah. I, look, I used, I used circus stories on my first date with my, with my t- future wife, you know, it was with my, with my wife to be, um, and, and I still, she still ended up marrying me. So that, that worked <laughs> out. Um, but look, the story here is about assumptions, right? The connection here is about assumptions. There's a, we make a series of assumptions and they hold true for a while and we stop testing them. We stop ensuring that they're true. We stop validating them. And at one point or another, they're going to stop being true. And when they stop being true, the thing that we're doing is going to fail. Now, how critically we're going to fail depends on how big of an assumption we have. In this, in a circus story, right, we had a fairly big assumption that this guy was going to land safely in the net because he had done that continuously for years. And presumably no one would have fired him if, if that right. assumption hadn't been there. Exactly. But And so the same thing, if, you, if you're building your business and you begin to scale and you make the assumptions that even though you're getting bigger and you're getting more customers and, and, and you know, that, that everything is going to continue to be the same, at some point that's going to break and it's going to, it's going to be critical to the success of your, of your culture, your organization, and your business. And so it's important to continuously test those assumptions. There's a phrase I love. I learned it by, from a TED Talk, which sounds like the most cliche thing to say these days, but it's <laughs> true. There's a TED Talk by a guy named Astro Teller which is a great name. Astro Teller runs Google X, their moonshot laboratory. And in his talk, he uses a phrase called enthusiastic skepticism. And that's how you have to run your business, with enthusiastic skepticism. 
It's this burning feeling that I can always be doing something better. There's always something that we should be improving. And I'm excited, I'm enthusiastic to find out what that is and how to make things better. That's the key to all of this. I like that. So just before we finish up, Jeff, there's one more thing that we wanted to chat to you about. So obviously we release books ourselves in Intercom and I understand that you run a publishing press yourself, Sense and Respond Press. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So we mentioned Josh Seiden before he's been mm-hmm. on the podcast. Josh is my longtime uh, co-author, a business partner and, and friend. He's, he's my friend as well. (laughs) It's very important. Very important. Uh, big fan of Josh. Uh, Josh and I run sense and respond press, which is a business book publishing press that publishes short practical business books for busy executives. The books are never more than 12,000 words long. That's about 45 minutes worth of reading, maybe an hour. And they focus on business agility, digital transformation, product management, and design. And I love this press because we are helping people unlock their first book. And we are more and more using it as a platform to help underrepresented minorities get their first publication out into the world. And we're super psyched about that. And so we've got 10 books published. You can see it at senseandrespondpress.com. We've got seven more books in the works and we're always looking for more authors. And so look at the site. If there's something you, you think you'd like to write about, give us a shout. So people can just pitch you directly through the site, is it? Absolutely. Great. Absolutely. And we'd love to hear from everybody on there. And beyond Sense and Respond Press, where can people keep up with your work? I've consolidated everything under my own website again for the first time in years. I'm really excited about it. So jeffgotthealth.com is where you go for kind of all things Jeff Got Health, blog posts, events, links, whatever. It's all there. That's brilliant. Thanks a million, Jeff. It's been an absolute delight chatting to you. Thank you, Dee. This was a blast. Thanks for listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more interviews, go to intercom.com slash blog or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. This is Inside Intercom.